Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are speaking. Lord, thank you that it's not about us. It's about you. And it's about what you are doing through us. Lord, would you speak to us now? In your precious name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Hey, so we've been in a sermon series called, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And, uh, and today we are looking at uh, the, our, our next phrase, which is out of Matthew 6, 13. And it says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And lead us not into temptation. I'm going to break it up into two sections and lead us not into temptation, and, but deliver us from evil. The petition here, lead us not into temptation, logically follows the petition for forgiveness. Repentance includes the desire to sin no more. And if we desire liberation from the guilt of sin, if we desire forgiveness, as Alyssa shared last week, right? Confession and forgive us. That we should also want release from its power. And so Jesus aptly follows the petition for forgiveness when teaching the disciples how to pray with the words and lead us not into temptation. That word temptation in the Greek is parasmos. It means a trial. It means a temptation. It means proving. And what better story in the Bible than the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. If you've got your Bibles, if you have it on your phone, or if you just want to follow along on the screen, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. We're going to look at that incredible passage of the temptation of Jesus. And we're going to read it together. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you 
if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. We're talking about, Lord, lead us not into temptation. And we're looking at the story of Jesus and how Satan was trying to tempt him. I think it's interesting that the devil tries to tempt, he tries to deceive by twisting the word of God. In verses 6 and 7, Jesus, or excuse me, Satan is quoting from Psalm 91. And um, he is blatantly misusing the scripture in an attempt to manipulate Jesus. He throws out all these things that by some standards, people would say, that sounds pretty exciting. That is tempting. But how does Jesus respond to the devil every single time he wields the word of God? Saying and rebuking the devil using the word of God. Have you ever wondered why the temptation? I have. Why does, why does Satan try to tempt Jesus just before he starts his ministry? Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. He was fasting for 40 days, and he's about to embark on this three-year ministry adventure. And then this, Satan comes to try to tempt him. It's an attempt to subvert God's plan for human redemption. If he causes Jesus to fall into sin, if he tempts him successfully, then that disqualifies him as a sinless savior. Satan tries to do that to us as well. He wants us to feel disqualified. He wants us to be deceived. He wants us to be tempted. We face all sorts of temptation in this life. And I've, I confess, I've been reading a lot of uh, John Calvin, and, and he talks about temptations. He describes them as coming from the right and coming from the left. And uh, I'm, I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel like it's not just coming from the right and the left. It's coming from behind. It's coming from in front. It's coming from above. It's coming from below. Anybody ever feel like that? Okay. And um, he talks about from the right, he mentions, mentions riches, power, and honor. These are tempting things, aren't they? Here on the North Shore, we can be highly focused on the acquisition of wealth. We can be encouraged by the temptation to compare ourselves to our peers, to our neighbors, to those we work with. And I think this sometimes leads us into the sin of thinking that we actually don't need God. I'm good. I'm all set. 
I've got everything I need. I'm not originally from the East Coast. And um, when, we, my, when my family, my parents, and I have two siblings and myself, uh, when we came back from Australia, we moved to Orange County, California, Southern California, to a small town called Dana Point. And Dana Point is a wealthy place. It's filled with affluence. And my parents planted a, a church there from scratch. And it was a slog. It was hard. And there are many different factors that played into that. But part of it, I'm convinced, is that people didn't feel like they need God. I work hard. I'm going to take my weekends and I'm going to go to the beach. I don't need God. Sometimes we're lured into the temptation that we don't need him. John Calvin talks about from the left comes poverty, disgrace, contempt, and afflictions. There's all sorts of afflictions out there. We might say some of them are small scale. Things like the temptation to be and find our fulfillment on, on social media or uh, we're overscheduling ourselves and our families and we have little time to be with one another or even to be with Jesus, right? Uh, there are other things on a larger scales as well, right? Like drugs and alcohol and, um, and addiction to pornography and, and things like that. I want to say that Jesus is the answer to those addictions. Jesus is the answer to those addictions. The temptation there is to despair, to lose all hope, maybe even lose our faith, and to become angry with God, to become estranged from God. Because we're left wondering sometimes, God, where are you? Why did you abandon me? He hasn't abandoned you. There is hope. I came to Gordon College um, as a junior, and in uh, 2001, I came home for Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving was a great time to see old friends and things like that. And, um, and one of my friends uh, was a very close friend. We had swam together. We played water polo together. We surfed together. Sometimes got into a little bit of mischief together. And so it was wonderful to come back and see him. And I remember distinctly coming back for Thanksgiving. And um, on that Wednesday, we went down. We, there was a community center where we used to live. And, and we used to take a jacuzzi. Um, and I remember noticing that he looked really thin. And I didn't make it, any sense of it or anything like that. I just noticed it. And that Saturday, he calls me up and he says, hey, Ben, you want to come over for a cup of tea? 
cup of tea. <laughs> That's not normal. What's up? And so I went over, and I went up to his house. He lived fairly close to me. I walked up to his house, and he's standing there in the kitchen. And he, he pulls up his sleeves, and he shows me the bandages on his arms after being hospitalized. His girlfriend had broken up with him, had gone out and was partying, had done a bunch of drugs, and he tried to end his life. He was so hopeless that he thought there was nowhere to turn. And you know, at that moment, in, in, sitting in his kitchen, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, you need to pray for this kid. I laid hands on him. He's totally unchurched. And we just cried out to God to give him hope that he would see that he had a future. And his life is changed. And uh, he has a wonderful family, still lives in Southern California. But you see, prosperity and adversity from the right and from the left, they bring on their own series of temptations and enticements. Temptations to not trust in God and towards centering our lives on ourselves. My afflictions, my woes, my quest for wealth, my prosperity, my situation, my honor, my reputation. And I'm not saying that these things aren't hard, and I'm, and I'm preaching just as much to myself as to everyone else. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't want us to look to ourselves. He wants us to look to him. Amen? He wants us to look to him. He wants us to talk to him and to pray to him, to not feel like we don't need him or that we are hopeless or that he's abandoned us, but that we can turn to him, that we can pray to him. He's our ultimate hope because of his deep abiding love for us, which was expressed at the cross with the death and resurrection of his son. This is the gospel. We have access to Jesus, even though we don't deserve it because of our sin. But by grace and his love for us, we are invited into communion with him, relationship with him, to turn to him. The second part of verse 13 of the Lord's Prayer is deliver us from evil. And in Ephesians 6, it's a pretty well-known passage. In fact, I was so proud of our, our Compass kids who memorized this entire passage. Do you remember, church, when they came up and they sit it um, in front of everybody? And, um, and so Ephesians 6, 10, 18 um, Let's, let's read it together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Spiritual warfare is real. It is a real thing. And when it comes to prayer and spiritual warfare, there are three things that I want to encourage us to be aware of in the spiritual realm. I'm trying to get practical. So what are these three things? Well, number one, Know your enemy. Number two, know your authority. And number three, know how to fight. We've got to know how to fight. When looking at know your enemy, 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I think sometimes in society we we dismiss that there is evil, that there is demonic power that is out there. I grew up in South Africa. I was born there. And I lived there from 1981 until 1990. I remember, I still remember uh, distinctly as a young nine-year-old. And, as a, and those of you who don't know me, I'm a history teacher. I wish I had recognized how historic a moment it was. I still remember when Nelson Mandela was freed from jail and coming home from school. My mom saying, he's free, he's free. But that system of apartheid was demonic. It was dark. Yes, there were people who were involved in instituting that on that nation, but there was a spiritual darkness that was happening in South Africa at that time, under the apartheid, which was the legalized separation of blacks and whites in Southern Africa. It's real. In Daniel chapter 10, the realities of spiritual warfare are made clear. Daniel received this disturbing revelation about a great impending war. And understanding his authority and and the power of prayer, Daniel began to intercede, to pray, fasting from meat and alcohol, The Bible says even lotions. I didn't know that, but um, fasting from those things. And after um, weeks, 
of fasting and prayer, an angel appeared to Daniel. This is in, in Daniel chapter 10. You can read it for yourselves. And the angel said to him, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. And as I was reading about this, it talked about how the angelic messenger was delayed for 21 days by an evil angel called the prince of Persia. And it took Michael, the archangel, to help the angel get his message to Daniel 21 days later. This is a real thing. There's real spiritual warfare out there. And we have to know the goals and agenda of the enemy. But even more importantly, we have to know our authority. Where does our authority come from? You know, the city of Ephesus was riddled with idolatry. All sorts of weird practices and the occult. You can read it in Acts 19, verse 19. They talk about it there. And you have this vulnerable young Christians um, who needed to know that Jesus was Lord and to understand the authority that they had from him, from Jesus. And in Ephesians 1, verses 20 through 23, I like the message version. I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, it talks about the authority. All this energy, this is from the message, 20 through 23. All this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from the dead and set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments. No name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all. He has the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church you see is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. We've been raised up with Christ and are seated with him in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 2 verse 6 says that. It says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? When we pray, we don't just plead for mercy, although that's appropriate from, from the midst of the mess, but rather we exercise authority from above as those seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We are his sons and his daughters. We've been elevated to this position of authority through Christ and what he's done for us. Luke chapter 10, verse 19 says, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. When we pray, we pray with the full authority of sons and daughters of the king. I don't know about you, but sometimes I've felt not that way. I haven't felt like I've had the authority of the king. Sometimes I feel like I'm a little mouse. 
squeaking, praying to God. But we have been given spiritual authority. And lastly, we've got to know how to fight. How do we fight? When Jesus was being tempted by the devil, he countered every temptation with an opposing verse from the Bible. In Hebrews 4, verse 12, it says, The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So what does this practically mean for us? Knowing the word of God is powerful. It is powerful. I was thinking about this, like how does this play out in our lives, practically speaking? Maybe you're feeling despaired or depressed or anxious. What does that look like? Maybe you turn to Jeremiah 29 verse 11, and instead of just quoting it or reading it, which says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Instead, you start to wield that sword. Lord, I choose to believe that you have a plan for my life that you are in charge. Lord, I declare that I refuse to panic. I'm not going to be afraid. I reject the lie that I'm continually missing out, that everyone else is moving ahead, that I'm getting left behind. We wield that sword. Or maybe you turn to Romans 8 verses 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You say to Satan, get off my back, Satan. I see what you're trying to do, and I'm believing, and I'm not giving in. Stop accusing me. Stop lying to me. I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. He's on my side. I'm not going to feel guilty or ashamed. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I think this is one of the important reasons why uh, it's, it's good to spend time regularly in the Bible. Not out of guilt. Not because I, I have to, but because I want to and because we are being equipped by the word of God. When we memorize scripture... It sharpens our sword. When we can actively use scripture, we can combat the evil one. So when we pray and when we read the Bible, it's not just providing solace to our soul. It's, it can do that. And it's not just providing light to our path, but it's actually arming us with truth. It's arming us with truth. truth that we desperately need to fight for our lives in this struggle between good and evil, between death and light. And some of you could dismiss this and say, yeah, that sounds like a second-rate Marvel comic, good and bad, light and dark, but it's true. This is what's happening in the world. 
not just wielding a sword, though. It's not just using the word. In the armor of God, we've been given the opportunity to wear the shoes of the gospel of peace. You thought about that? I have recently. It's a good reminder. One of the greatest acts of spiritual warfare is when you lead somebody into relationship with Jesus. When you lead somebody into relationship with Jesus, it's one of the greatest acts of spiritual warfare. Because the battle is happening now, but the war is over. It ended at the cross with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we're still not going to be fighting battles, though. But we know that we have the victory in the end. And by sharing Jesus with other people, we're waging spiritual warfare as well through the shoes of the gospel of peace. I think there's nothing that the enemy fears more than seeing people come to Christ. And having their eyes open to the revelation of what Jesus has done for us at the cross. He's made us righteous by the blood of the Lamb. We're going to enter into a time of response here. And there's a couple of different ways that we can respond. Maybe you felt a lot of temptation. Maybe that's an area of struggle. We all face temptations, right? But maybe there's a consistent place of temptation in your life. And maybe you feel guilty about that. Ask the Lord how he wants you to respond to that. Knowing that there is sin and evil in the world... Perhaps you can ask the Lord, how can I be a minister of the gospel of peace to my neighbors, to my friends and co-workers? There's an internal response that we can have right now, and there's an external response as well. I was thinking about all the songs that we were just singing in church, and there's a theme there. But we're engaged in fighting these battles, oftentimes daily. And you know what? Jesus has already fought the battle for us. At the cross, he fought the battle for us. And sometimes all we have to do is stand. All we have to do is stand in the power of what Jesus has done for us. It's not always easy, is it? But Jesus is fighting our battles for us. There were a couple of words when we, when we prayed, and, and I just want to share them. Um, we're going to have our prayer team available to respond. And you can respond how you feel you need to. Maybe it's sitting in your chair 
and dialoguing with the Lord. Maybe it's praying quietly. Maybe it's standing and worshiping. Maybe it's coming up to some members of our, our prayer team on the sides and you want to share a specific area of temptation or an area in your life where you need victory. I encourage you to respond however the Lord is leading you to do so. There were a couple of words that were shared, as I mentioned, and I just want to share them now. One person felt like the Lord was saying he wants to give a lot, and we need to have an expectation for that in our lives. The Lord wants to give of himself to us. That there is hope was another one. Somebody had a picture of a sword breaking the chain. And, um, and so uh, that, that chain of hopelessness, maybe people feel that, right? Maybe you feel like you've been chained up with hopelessness or you've never been able to respond to that temptation in a way that you felt like was God honoring, right? And so maybe you want prayer to break that chain off of your life. Also, there was another idea of just the awe of what Jesus has done for us. That he has fought our battles at the cross. We've been made righteous. So I invite you to respond in how you feel the Lord is leading you as we sing a song of response.